This episode of Film Jive is brought to you by Audible.com, the world's largest selection of premium audiobooks and spoken word content with over 150,000 titles to choose from. To sign up for your free 30-day trial, please visit audibletrial.com slash filmjive. Welcome to the Film Jive Podcast. We are recording this episode on September 13th, 2014. My name is Zach. And I'm Andy. This is episode number 79, where we are discussing Roger Corman's 1967 counterculture cult film, The Trip, released by AIP and starring Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper, Susan Strasberg, and Bruce Stern. Andy, would you please read the plot synopsis? Television director Peter Groves is in the throes of a personality crisis. His wife Sally has left him, and he seeks solace from his friend John, who is an advocate of LSD. Paul asks John if he will act as his guide on his first drug trip. John takes Paul to a freakout at his friend Max's house, where they score some acid before returning to John's place with an indoor pool. After taking the acid, Paul undergoes a trip like no other, filled with visions of sex, death, strobe lights, flowers, dancing girls, witches, hooded riders at a torture chamber, and a dwarf. Paul begins to panic, but John simply says, Go with it, man. So, uh, had you ever seen The Trip before, Zach? No. First time watching it. Okay, well, what were your initial thoughts? Okay, well, first impressions of Roger Corman's The Trip, released in 1967 by or AIP. 67, or, or, or 67. Uh, I like the movie, yeah, I didn't love it. I think there's maybe uh, a cornucopia of reasons why that could be. I mean, I know you love this film. Yeah. It's probably your favorite Roger Corman movie, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that or Mask of the Red Death, but probably this one. Which I find a little funny because, you know, I was watching it, and it is essentially a upper-class white man who is bored with his life movie. Doesn't really have that many problems, real problems, you know. I see it as very autobiographical of Roger Corman. Yeah, no, yeah, I definitely agree. As that Fonda's character is a commercial director who kind of, I believe, longs for something a little more uh, deep. Because we have the one tripping scene where Dennis Hopper, <clears throat> you know, accuses him of being a commercial director as if that's bad. Mm-hmm. And Corman, who was known for essentially commercial films made for teenagers. I think longed for something a little more artistic and you can see more in the sixties how he's trying to break free from that yet still stay within the realm of commercial films with things like the trip and gas and wild angels. And so X, which all, all those films were kind of poorly critically received, which in the U S yeah. From which I gather some people suggest is why he kind of stopped directing. Yeah. They might have been commercial hits, but he was not getting kind of any 
good critical feedback, basically, and that kind of war on him. In the U.S., I actually wrote, read a uh, article from a 1971 issue of uh, Film Comment, mm-hmm. and it was an essay on Roger Corman, and they mentioned that it was starting around this time that in Europe they started uh, critically reappraising his films. Well, I know, like, with Wild Angels, that's a movie that they loved in Europe, and it was completely panned in the U.S., even though it made a lot of money. But I, I would say it even stems to, like, there are scenes where Peter Fonda's character, I think, feels somewhat guilty about being mm-hmm. a part of the media manipulation in commercial yeah. filmmaking. I mean, there's, especially when he's bombarded with it all, in the with all the advertising in the city later but i wonder if my my lack of enthusiasm has to do with that i feel like watching this film now it's either a movie that's been highly influential on this sort of subgenre of filmmaking in terms that there's a lot of imagery that feels like it's been um it's inspired other drug films or other drug films have just ripped it off. But I do like it as sort of a counterculture film that explores that from the perspective of someone who really isn't a part of the counterculture. So there are moments that feel very you know, authentic or the character is undergoing some kind of revelation that would seem to play in the favor of more like counterculture ideals. And then there are moments that feel very much like it's kind of poking fun at the counterculture and other cultures that kind of existed in 1960s L.A. at that time. So, you know, there's like a scene that seems like it's kind of picking on like the hippie new age stuff where he grabs that orange and it's like he's feeling the energy of the sun from it. Hmm. I didn't see that as kind of poking fun at the... So you think it's completely sincere? Well, I do know that um, in preparation for the film, Corman, much like how the structure of the movie, Corman went to a friend that was into LSD and did a trip much like that. And that well, was he said he did it out the... in Big Sur and there was a caravan of people and there were tons of people and they were all just taking turns doing trips and who was going to be their, their guide. Guide, yeah. But he he has also said that his trip was just completely pleasant, so he couldn't draw that much upon it in the making of the movie. Yeah, I I just I guess if if mm-hmm. I don't know, I took that as sort of like it was sort of maybe not completely sincere. And if this movie, I felt like if it was a hundred percent sincere in all of those things, I would not be able to take the movie seriously because just that that idealism or that philosophy, I just can't wrap my head around or get into if it was a movie that was just all about praising uh hippie culture new or counterculture whatever it is i don't know that i would have any way to really get into it i don't know if it was like necessarily praising it but more looking at it in an optimistic fashion of the possibilities of what this kind of thinking can create not that like praising it, but almost like there are possibilities in this. Yeah, well, and it's important to explore them. I, I think it, it's it's worth mentioning that because counterculture and drugs and all of that were becoming more like I guess socially acceptable in 
certain circles in the U.S. They're like this is in this movie's coming out in a period where like drug panic movies were getting more popular again. So there yeah. are lots well, of notice, anti-drug movies, but then yeah, and if you notice AIP, the the prologue at the beginning and the crack cracking of the screen at the end yeah. were forced upon Corman by AIP to do those things. But but I will say that I don't think even still that the movie is necessarily pro drugs, but I do think mm-hmm. it at least attempts, like you were saying, I do agree that it attempts to try to understand. And I think uh, sympathize with that philosophy that some of these characters believe in throughout the film. But I'm not, I don't know that I feel like Roger Corman is necessarily endorsing it either. Yeah, I, I agree with you in that regard. I'm not, yeah, I don't think he's necessarily saying everyone should do this, but more like I said, that it may be worthwhile to experiment with this to see what can happen, but not necessarily this is the way to go. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I really like about the film is I think the scenes with Bruce Stern and Peter Fonda, especially when they first come to Dern's house, I think seem very natural. They're very low-key, very conversational. They seem very real to me. And I, I think Bruce Stern's really great in the film. Yeah. I think he does really come across as as a friend. Like, their relationship seems very real. And, I mean, they were friends in real life. But it comes across like very protective in, I don't know, like those scenes, they don't seem to exploit the fact that, I know this is an exploitation film, but I think Corman handles those scenes with uh, a lot more sensitivity than other directors uh, at that time would have done. Those scenes aren't loud, they're very quiet, and I don't know, there's something about those scenes that just ring very real to me. Yeah, I do think there's a couple moments where Bruce Stern starts to come off as a little creepy, though. Well, the chair scene does. Yeah, or like when he gets him out of the pool and he's like wrapping him in towels and then he's like petting his face. I well, he's trying to calm him down. I know it's just a little. I don't. I don't know. (laughs) Just because he's so understated, it does kind of because he even he when he seems to when Paul gets more aggressive or erratic mm-hmm. Bruce Stern's character always seems to be very calm and keeping it very yeah. cool and so I know that he's referred to in like in reviews or things like that as a guru but I almost wondered you know like is he someone that is a doctor or a part of some kind yeah. of medical profession yeah I've always read it as that he is just a middle class white man I mean he's married with kids we do know that mm-hmm. because Fonda asked him where his wife and kids are. Um, see him as just a middle class man who's already be, already experimented with it. I think Dennis Hopper is the guru, and he is their mutual friend mm-hmm. where they get the drugs from. I actually thought that was another thing that I think is very interesting about this film is that Dennis Hopper's character is not not portrayed as a villain or anything, but um. The scene where Fonda goes back and I'm being chased by the cops and Hopper's essentially like, well, you've got to leave then. I think uh, <clears throat> does play to your notion that Corman isn't like actively promoting this lifestyle necessarily in that Hopper isn't as open as we stereotypically think of, say, like a hippie. He is still out for self-preservation. 
Well, there's also in that same sequence um, when his girlfriend kisses Fonda. It's not stated or anything, but just in, I think, like Dennis Hopper's body language, there does seem to be a certain like jealousy that yeah, comes across where, he, you know, then he tells her to go get his shirt. Well, the how the that kind of plays out is Hopper almost like, again, body language wise, encourages her to go over there. But once it actually happens, his body language and his facial expression changes mm-hmm. to one that is more guarded and uh, less open <laughs> in there. I do think that's one thing about this film is that it does have a really great cast with those three. And you have Dick Miller in in the film as the bartender. Right. I love seeing him. I think Susan Strasberg is good in the film. Yeah, they were always um I get I haven't I don't think I've seen as many Roger Corman films as as, as you have. I've seen the, mm-hmm. the Poe films, Bucket of Blood and wild angels and i'm sure there's maybe a couple more but uh just recognizing somebody like dick miller i was expecting a larger role or and and maybe he did do smaller stuff like this in roger corman films yeah i mean by this by this point dick miller wasn't going to be the leading man in a corman film right by this point your leading men would be like peter fonda bruce stern dennis hopper like guys of that i mean even like at this point What's funny, at this point, Jack Nicholson wouldn't be a leading man in a Corman film. Jack Nicholson's just the screenwriter for the trip. Mm. So it is kind of funny how I think Corman viewed some of his guys, like his regular camp of guys, like Jonathan Hayes isn't in this film at all. And by this point, I can't even, I can't even really think of him showing up in many films by this point. And Dick Miller would just have roles like a bartender. Jack will just be briefly seen or seen at all. And if he's not seen, then he's doing something behind. Well, but behind is the Jack Nicholson not the leading man in Psych Out? He is, but that's not a corn. That Richard Rush directed that one. But it's in that's an AIP film, right? Yeah, yeah, but AIP wasn't like Corman's company. That was uh, Arkoff and Nicholson's uh, Nicholas's company. But again, you have Bruce Stern, Susan Strasberger in Psych Out, Dean Stockwell's in it, so that same kind of crew. So Nicholson is still being in films. And uh, he is essentially the lead in Psych Out, I think, even more so than Susan Strasberg. Well, even even her in this film, I thought, like, I mean, it is ultimately Peter Fonda's film, um, but just certain actors get introduced, and I was thinking they would have a larger role than they ended up Mm -hmm. having. Because even Bruce Dern, at some point, just kind of disappears. Yeah, once uh, Fonda escapes from the house, Bruce Dern's gone. Mm -hmm. The... uh, what I think is kind of funny is the street scenes of Fonda roaming uh, sunset and everything with the way that it's shot. I mean, you can't help but think of Easy Rider, you know, with Hopper and Fonda, with Hopper directing it just a few years later, their Mardi Gras scene. Mm-hmm. I don't think very many people would look at Roger Corman being that big of an influence on Easy Rider, but he really is. I mean, I don't think they would have made Easy Rider without Wild Angels. and then. I think their freak-out tripping scenes are very much inspired by the trip and what Corman did. Well, what I think is interesting about the way that um, the trip sequences are constructed is that when chaos takes control, it seems to be coming from 
the ordinary in life rather than the more psychedelic elements, which they do have a certain element of chaos, but they feel much more disciplined. It's almost like the LSD is used to heighten the ordinary with like the advertising, these nightclubs, or even like the laundromat. It's things become more chaotic in very ordinary situations. It's even just like the, like you mentioned with the chair or the whole discussion around the living room or things. They just taking very normal everyday things and somehow transforming them into something that is very sort of chaotic and overwhelming, which is what I guess I would typically assume would happen when you're experiencing some kind of drug trip. Yeah, I would agree with you that I agree with you that I, I think that's what it does. It just kind of heightens your senses in that regard. And I think one of the of his tripping scenes, I think really it's one of the most quiet, but it's also there's something very I don't want to say eerie, but something creepy about it is when he does sneak in the house and he hangs out with that little girl for a while. Yeah. For some reason, that scene always strikes me as, like I said, I don't want to say scary, but there's like a sense of uh, creepiness to it. And not necessarily with him just being with the little girl, but just, I guess, the concept of being lost and wandering into someone's home. and But not even realizing that you're doing anything wrong either yeah um that's kind of an example of a scene where i felt like the payoff is disappointing it is for whatever reason a very unbearably uncomfortable moment and i felt like the tension is built really wonderfully and then the climax is just it's just sort of that tension is instantly relieved and like the consequences are almost like non-existent and and that's the same thing for like the laundromat scene, which I love until the end. And it's like every time he gets himself into a conflict, it's resolved by him just leaving. I guess maybe that's an interesting commentary on the way his character deals with problems in his life. But I just felt like it didn't... Like that idea isn't illustrated enough in the movie for me to think that that's really, I guess, what it's saying. So I just always felt like in those scenes where I was just like, I wanted more of something. Like, I don't even know how you would necessarily resolve that scene with the little girl. Yeah, I don't know. I see. I kind of like the ending with her father coming down and said, what are you doing to him and him just running out? I think that adds to the bizarre, the bizarreness of a real life situation like that for me Mm -hmm. would be just the person leaving. Mm hmm. I think your um, comment on it possibly being commentary on his character of character just leaving these situations, I think maybe kind of, maybe there might be some truth to that, that he is leaving his marriage, and I think from what we've seen, what we what we see in the movie, it's never implicitly told to us, but we see things is that she's having an affair, or she did, yeah, well, yeah, and. Uh, Instead of working through any sort of marital problems, he just leaves the situation. Yeah, but I I also think um, his trip does at least what I was gathering for from the the images was that he's also somebody that's just kind of generally indecisive. Yeah, if he really, I guess, if he really wanted to leave his marriage, why isn't he at the meeting signing the papers? Like the papers, right? Explained it. To well, me. Yeah, he has a new female with him but 
a lot of his trips kind of exist around the two women in his life and his un how he can't decide between them really that's why i guess i question his his just fleeting that scene is that uh why in that moment does he suddenly become aware that what he's doing is wrong and that he should leave mm-hmm. i guess is what yeah, i no, wonder yeah yeah what you what you say makes sense mm-hmm. yeah i agree with you of that and and i and i do think like there there's a weird thing with watching this movie where it almost as i'm watching it i'm kind of thinking like is having been on an lsd trip yourself important to the viewing of the film and i don't know that it is i mean i've never flown an airplane or fought nazis during world war 2 or all these other things and all these other movies that characters do things that i have never done but i can completely re- relate to so i don't think how accurately accurately it depicts an LSD trip is necessary to how you judge the movie, or that you even have to completely throw out rationality when watching it. It's just, I guess, there are certain times where even if the behavior is sort of unpredictable anyway because of what he's doing, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I just I don't know that it always justifies how things get resolved. So there are times where there are just scenes or moments that felt kind of like missed opportunities for me where there was like, oh, there's more that could be done there. Like if he is confronted by the father, like what is Paul's reaction to that kind of authority? Because it does feel like an anti-authority movie to a certain extent as well. Does he fight the father or what is what is how does he resolve that, I guess? Yeah, Um, I think you can look at a lot of Corman films as having a anti-authority bent to them which is interesting because for much of his career he's been like quote-unquote the boss i mean a producer he was always a producer director and then he just became a producer so he was always the authority really in his films yet they always have that kind of anti-authority bent to them i do think one of the things i like about the film is i've never been on LSD, you know, um, but comparing to a lot of other drug films that I've seen, this one does seem more authentic than a lot of them. Right. And I think uh, that's one of the things I've always liked about the film is the the seeming authenticity to his trips and I think his um, his reactions to a lot of things. I like that he doesn't go kind of, he doesn't really scream a lot or anything. I think in a lot of them, uh, a lot of drug films even pro-drug films we kind of get a reefer madness-esque view of the people that are actually doing the drugs they act hysteric and i don't really think he ever does he acts confused sometimes and uh i'm trying to think of what i want to say um confused or just a part of the experience but i he never to me seems like he gets hysterical or crazy about anything no but i i think he does exhibit fear yeah yeah but i think but i think from things that I've read about LSD, that is a common thing to have. So I think it's appropriate for him to be afraid of some of his visions. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting that all the hallucinations at some point or another get... The longer they last, the darker they become. Yeah. By the time near the end of the movie when it seems like it's starting to wear off is I think when he does become maybe most hysterical. Yeah. 
but but generally he's pretty he's he's emotionally expressive but it's not histrionic or anything like that um let's talk about some of the the visual elements because this film i think is a very visual film sure sure i think for some things i've read about corman where they talk about how uh his films lack artistic quality or an artistic eye. If you see this film, I don't know how you could say that. I think his, the visions he creates, his, the visual quality of the film is really quite extraordinary. Some of the stuff that he thought of and for the film, I thought some of the hallucinations were great. To be honest with you, um, I think Peter Fonda and Susan Strasberg and the other female having sex with the with the lighting on them. I think it's a great moment. I think uh, Fonda being um, strapped to the chair and then wrapped up like a mummy with the death mask is a great moment, um, great visual moment. I've always been struck by the, the visuals in this film. I think the hallucinations are are pretty fascinating. Yeah, I really like all the, the desert photography stuff yeah. where he's running up the, the dunes. Uh, I actually, though... Um, I felt at times that imagery was was too coherent. The seventh seal imagery that mm-hmm. he's experiencing, yeah. and this is again why I I it's like if I've never been on LSD, I I don't know, but yeah, I wanted something that was more stream of consciousness. Like I I wanted I was kind mm-hmm. of I guess expecting like a James Joyce drug movie where there's just images okay. coming yeah. at you from all directions the entire time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and there is some of that like in those you know i i really do love that the sex scene with the revolving partners and the the projection techniques where it that becomes just a very hypnotic almost hypnotizing inducing moment where you're just kind of staring at it and it's going on and on and on and uh well i think any any time he uses the projections in the film it's great now i'm a sucker for projection on the people yeah that's, but uh, th- that suckers you. There was there was the one projection with the woman's mouth open. It looked like like these lines were going into her mouth. I think is like just like a mind blowing image for me. You know, and I uh, and I think the um, it's interesting because as I was watching it, it does sort of play in its own way as this sort of bizarre sizzle reel of Roger Corman's film legacy, almost where. Oh, I agree. Yeah, you watch this and you can see like, oh, this is the. You know, this is the terror, and this is Poe films, and like I do think you can kind of get that in the film. Yeah, it's just like it. It takes all these different genres that he's worked in, and he finds places to implement them. So there are moments that feel like the Poe horror films. So that is also where I kind of started to feel like, in a way, it's a very personal film for Roger Corman's because he's kind of like combining all these different film aesthetics that he's worked on over the years into one movie but even more so than the the visuals what i thought was most sort of impressive about the film is the editing of all of these images and how it strings them together i mean that is to me what i found most fascinating of was the film is how he uses strobe lights or physical Mm -hmm, movement in a frame to motivate his cuts and motivate transitions from one scene to the next. Actually, one thing that I think is a little bit of a shame is I don't think the score is that good. 
Yeah, it's not as yeah. It doesn't yeah, it it doesn't live up to the images that it's playing against is basically. I I think in moments it's very helpful in creating an atmosphere, but I I do think there are certain pieces of music that almost act against it. Like I don't like the Benny Hill music during the final no. montage. Um, I, I, the, the main theme of the film that plays over the end credits and shows up throughout the film, I do like yeah, it. Oh yeah, no, eerie, I like that eerie, a lot. There's an eerie quality to that. And I like the fact that he kind of, um, refrained from doing the stereotypical, um. Like Eastern inspired? Yeah, stuff, like yeah. psychedelic sound that I think he could have fallen into. Yeah. But yeah, I agree with you that the score isn't what it should have been. And I pick on that final montage specifically because... To me, that moment I felt like was supposed to be some kind of catharsis for his character, almost. And having that music play against it almost seemed like it was playing comedically. I don't know. I felt like it was undermining the value of what was happening there. And it's just... I I kind of noticed this early on, and I don't know. Maybe it goes away. It was just something I thought of when when I first started watching the film, was that the music is just almost relentlessly constant. And I think the longer things go on and the more it plays, it starts to lose the intensity of it. Yeah, the only scenes that I can think of that really don't have the music are when we first get to Bruce Stern's place. It's played without music. Yeah, those, I, I guess those scenes, yeah, there's no... Yeah, and I think that's actually was a smart move mm-hmm. to play those without music. Well, I think you have to... Ha- like, it's just... it makes. I think it makes sense just in terms of you have so much going on in these other scenes you have to have something quiet so that you can almost acclimatize themselves i mean if it that is one thing i guess where the like why this isn't a james joyce type of movie it's like i think if it was just 70 minutes of all that imagery it would i guess it's palpable sense of dread or whatever's happening in those moments would start to lose itself because it just would become this uh, relentless uh, attack on the viewer's senses. Um, and I think by breaking it up a little bit, he's able to get more mileage out of images because he repeats a lot of things. There's a lot of repetition in those uh, hallucinations, whereas I think if he was trying to sustain something straight for 70 minutes, he wouldn't be able to do that. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Good, good, good. Now, are you familiar at all with Psych Out and, and Gas? Yeah, I've seen both of those. So how does this compare to those? I think it's the best I think it's the best out of those three. It's been a while since I've seen Gas, and I remember the first time I saw Gas. It's not that I didn't like it, I didn't love it. Gas is almost um almost to the extreme of kind of like heavy culture kind of thing. Okay. Like there's a shootout, for instance, and they use like their hands and as when they shoot, they will say, like, John Wayne. And I was like, ah, oh, like that. Or, like, you know, like, Lee Marvin and so forth. And it's almost uh, to the extent of, 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 of hippie films that you can do, really. But like I said, it's been a while since I've seen it. I, I have it, and I thought about watching it yesterday after the trip, but I didn't have time. Psych Out is good, too. But, I, again, Psych Out plays more like a normal movie than the trip does, in my opinion. And it's more of a cautionary tale, I think. Susan Strasberg's a runaway coming to San Francisco. Mm, mm-hmm. I don't like it as much, but it's still enjoyable. Um, 
it does have good moments of music and things in it. But yeah, I think it reads more as a cautionary film. And I want to say Michael J. Weldon might, I think he prefers Psych Out to the trip, but I don't. <laughs> Richard Rush make a much better film with the stuntman. Let's just say that. And this being your, this is your favorite Roger Corman film. I guess is a dumb question because I I wondered where this falls for you amongst his his genre work outside of the poet. Like, is this the best film by a long shot that he did outside of the the Poe films? I mean, like by by a long shot. I mean, that's tough to say. Um, because I you know the Wild Angels is really good. Yeah, I, uh, I think the Wild Angels is still my favorite Corman movie. The Man with the X-ray Eyes is good. And yeah, there, he made so many films that it's easy to find a new one that you've never seen. Like, I watched Sorority Girl for the last time. I mean, for the first time last night. And that was in a film from 57 of his. And whereas I wouldn't say it's amongst his best films, it was an enjoyable film. I liked it. I thought it was pretty well made for as early as it was for, for his filmography. And as cheap as it probably was. And it's so different than everything else in my mind that he's on. I mean, it's so melodramatic. And um, I think that's one thing about Corman films, which I never really thought about much. But when I was reading that film comment article that I was telling you about, he mentioned, uh, the author mentioned that Corman doesn't do action scenes, that he isn't great at doing action scenes, but he's great at conveying psychological drama in his films, and especially that of the characters. And I think in Sorority Girl, you really get that, the, Essentially, what that whole film is about is why is this sorority girl, for lack of a better terms, such a bitch? You know, what drives her to be such a horrendously horrible person? Well, I actually think the psychology in his Poe films is partially what makes them so effective. So great. Oh, yeah. I, I think you especially get that in, like, House of Usher and, well, Pit and the Pendulum and Mask of the Red Death. I think you really get that in those three. And it's and it's it's a psychology like it's a psychology of horror that is very um, it's very simple to a certain extent. Like he's playing on in in terms of creating atmosphere, and so he's almost playing on the fears of a child. Mm-hmm. And it's even like even as an adult, you kind of understand the the these things, but that fear as a child still kind of exists in you and he's almost like extrapolating that out of you while you're watching those films i mean i always i've always thought of roger corman as a more intelligent filmmaker than he's ever been given credit for and i always think his exploitation films there's always something a little bit more going on beneath the surface um i i think the one because they're obviously, I think you're with Corman, you're split into two camps. One camp is that he's way better than people give him credit for. And the other is he's makes horrendously bad films. I think the ones that just see that he makes horrendously bad films, I, I think that they're just looking at, at his films on the surface. And there's no way that they've seen all of his films either. But but I don't even know how you could agree with that because like, I don't know that I'm as a staunch defender of as Corman as you are. But I don't know how you could argue that those, at least say, th- you know, half of those Poe films are really s- strong films. Like they're well, all those films are technically made very soundly, and I mean Vincent Price, whoever's performing in them. 
Oh, yeah, Ray Milland or him or, yeah, Peter Lorre. They're all good. You know, just in terms of, I mean, they're just as, like, visually rich or glossy or whatever as any of those, like, early 60s studio horror films. Like, they no, in I, production I value, so I don't... Well, that's my thing with him where I can't see how anyone can say he's a horrible filmmaker in that I think all of his films are competently made for no matter how low budget they are. I mean, something like A Bucket of Blood, which was, like, made over a couple days for next to no money, is competently made. And funny. And, yeah, and it's funny. I mean, he does humor really well, too, in a lot of his films. The Trip kind of doesn't have a whole lot of humor in it, but, yeah, he does humor real well. Um, one person I was thinking about when watching this, though, was actually Kenneth Anger. Oh, the leather, you saw leather pants on Dennis Hopper, and you're like... Yeah. yeah, I actually did think that was weird, that he was wearing leather pants, but uh, were hippies really into leather? Is that a stupid question? Well, you know, uh, Jim Morrison wore leather pants. Yuck. Uh, the first Doors album was in 67, so... And it was wrapped in leather. <laughs> and it was wrapped in leather, and... uh. Post Kenneth Anger's Scorpio Rising, that was sixty four. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I don't know. That's funny because I don't know how I don't know how popular those films were, the Anger films were at that time. Yeah, see, that was one thing I was I wanted I was going to ask you was because I know you love Kenneth Anger. Um, yeah. I guess one thing I was I had thought about after watching this was I didn't feel that the trip ever reached the rich visualness of a Kenneth Anger film. Like I didn't mm-hmm. like Kenneth Anger's movies, at least for me, just on a visual level were, are still much more interesting than yeah. this is. And I guess I wonder how do you compare those two things, I guess, to some extent and is Kenneth Anger even popular in 1967 or is that something that happens a lot later? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I mean, he's definitely known, because uh, Invocation of My Demon Brother does have a Mick Jagger score. And that was late 60s. So, I mean, he's definitely known. Uh, Martin Scorsese does liner notes for one, a collection of Kenneth Anger films. And from what I remember from reading the notes, he was aware of him in college. So he would have been aware of him in the at least the early 60s. But I don't know how, outside of that, I don't know how far it reaches. You know, would Corman have seen any of his films? I don't know. I think it's possible. Corman is based in Los Angeles. A lot of Kenneth Anger stuff was in California, San Francisco. So I think that's possible. When you look at the films that New World re- picked up to release, he did a lot of, like, Fellini films and things like that. You know, he released them over here, Corman. So there is a possibility that, just reading from that, if you look at the things, the films that New World picked up to release, things like Fellini and Bergman, you have to think that Corman liked those films. Oh, I think he's said that he loved those films. Yeah. yeah. So in that regard, I I'd imagine that he would have known who he was. And what's actually interesting about just on him distributing those is Roger Corman's probably the only distributor that's like advertised like foreign art films the way that big studios would advertise you know, oh, their big yeah. temple summer yeah. blockbusters. Like he really pushed those films in marketing in a way that's like really unusual to think of today. 
So it's almost weird that like if all those filmmakers had been making films like in 2010 and Roger Corman's distributing their films in the States, like are we watching TV advertisements for like Fellini's Amacord against like the new Captain America movie? It's just, this, I, yeah, I, I just I mean, find it's a strange thing to think about. I think a, like a Corman today would have utilized the internet a lot in his advertising. Yeah, sure. Uh, more so than traditional television advertising. Um, because television advertising, the cost of television advertising has exploded over the decades. I guess one thing about the Kenneth Anger element is that if Roger Corman had seen those films, I will at least give him credit that he avoids any similarities between them. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't try yeah. to evoke that imagery at all. But anger, anger's imagery is a lot, a lot darker than I think Corman would could have even attempted to go to. I don't think Corman is necessarily that dark of a person. Yeah. I mean, even, uh, even those scenes where he's being chased by the, uh, the Nazgul from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I don't know. There's still something kind of not quite, completely menacing about them. I don't know if it's just because yeah. they're shot during daytime or, or what it is exactly, but it, I guess it never devolves into a complete nightmare. No, and even the when he when the the, the cloaked people put the um the death mask on him and light his body on fire. Again, that's not even truly menacing or threatening either. I just don't think that's in him to do something that dark. I've often wondered uh, the outfit that Peter Fonda wears with the slacks, the white button-up shirt, and the red sweater. I've often wondered. I mean, are you were they basing that on something Corman probably wore? Probably. Yeah, I mean, I've seen pictures where he's wearing similar clothing. Was... Yeah. Um, one thing I I did want to bring up was the ending of the movie, mm-hmm. and yeah. I know we've mentioned the mere cracking was something that AIP kind of imposed yeah because i guess they they had trepidations about it being a pro-drug film but one thing i guess i was a little disappointed with in the ending is that there isn't really any closure no but i've read people that have seen it without the crack the mirror cracking in the prologue at the beginning and say that the ending feels there's like an optimism to the ending that isn't there with the cracked mirror like almost like this is the beginning of a new day or so. So I can kind of see that. I cuz I kind of when I watched the movie, I watched it with the idea of that the crack the crack mirror is not supposed to be there. And I did have a feeling that there was something optimistic about the conclusion. I think for me the the whole movie I'm under under this sort of assumption that Paul's character is undergoing some kind of self-analyzing and he's coming to Mm -hmm. terms with some emotional hangups that he's going through. So in that way, the film feels very subjective and very personal to his character. And then there's something about the ending where it doesn't really feel so personal because it doesn't really illustrate that Paul has addressed any of those things by, by the end of his trip. And so I don't, it's difficult for me to see what was ultimately learned from that trip. I mean, I guess to some extent you could say because he does come out of it and say like, I'll tell you, I'll, you know, talk about it tomorrow or something. 
he's come to some sort of self-discovery and now he's comfortable with the way his life is or something. But it, in a way, it felt just more like another thing that he's putting off. Yeah, I can see that. So I, I, I don't know. It's just weird because there is so much repetition on and emphasis on certain events within the trip that I find it hard to believe that we were supposed to kind of just come away with nothing almost. Mm-hmm. It's just a very confusing ending to me. Like I just, I guess I expected not some great big revelation because I guess if, if he did depict it that way, that's saying like, take drugs, you know, yeah. it's going to answer, be the answer to all the problems in your life. But to me, it's, it's just strange because the movie is almost structured in three acts where you have like, Act one is is like the character development. It's it's the beginning of everything. Act two is where he's like self-analyzing himself. And then act three, I would think, would be the self-discovery. And I don't know yeah. that it exactly executes the self-discovery portion of the movie by the yeah, end. Okay. I think that's a fair criticism. I would be really interested to see it without the cracked mirror. Yeah, I do too. I really want to see it without it. Now, if there... <laughs> I'm hoping that there's not a, a DVD or anything that exists. No, it aired it. on um, it aired on MGM HD, and I think they uh, like even promoted it on MGM HD for like a week that like they're going to air the uh, original edit of the trip, and so it's probably floating around out there on torrent sites somewhere. Right. But I'm hoping that like Kino or Arrow or someone releases it on like Blu-ray because I watched it. I, I have multiple copies on DVD because I'm in different sets. Uh, like a Corman set and the film by itself and stuff. And uh, oh, it's in dire need of restoration work. Yeah, the copy I watched was a little, a little rough. Yeah, um, and I, mean, I I could just imagine those images on Blu-ray like really popping. Yeah. So so I'm hoping that someone releases a a stacked uh, Blu-ray of it, and hopefully that will come relatively soon. I know Joe Dante wants to is trying to get funding to make a film about the making of the trip titled The Man with Kaleidoscope Eyes. And I believe uh, Tim Lucas wrote the script, actually. The Tim Lucas? Yeah, the video watched of Tim Lucas. The Tim Lucas who likes Film Jive posts but doesn't listen to them? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Cool. (laughs) Well, you gotta start somewhere, I guess. (laughs) He knows we're out there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I mean one of the thing I know I might have touched on it a little bit ago, but I I do really appreciate how delicate it does treat the subject matter. The trip itself isn't an overtly violent one. For a movie that is 79 minutes, it it is it exhibits a great deal of sort of patience and I think discipline within the imagery where I guess, you know, it it is a testament that Roger Corman just doesn't let things go completely wild or off the rails or whatever. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I feel like there are plenty of drug films that you could watch that do that. So I guess the fact that this doesn't do that is kind of unique in itself as well. And just it, I actually think it uses color really well. Yeah, but I think that's something that in all of Corman's color films, I think that's something that. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he just does that really well. And I think that the color work in all of his Poe films is outstanding. And I think uh, Mask of the Red Death is kind of like the highlight of that with the colored rooms. Or even just, there's also that scene with Dennis Hopper. I don't know what the fuck was going on in that scene where he's <laughs> got him like tied to that chair. Just like, yeah. That's like a very vibrant 
set with the purples and the reds and all kinds of things. It's just I guess it's just a very uh that's why I do think a, a Blu-ray transfer would be really good because I think it would illust- like it would help communicate the density I think of some images just in terms of their and the color that is in the frames and things like that how how uh varied it is let me let me stop you for a minute the pizza guy just showed up so he's going to knock on the door here in a second so i'll be right back okay All right, I'm back. So what what did you get on your pizza? Uh, I think sausage. I didn't order it. My wife did from work. <laughs> okay. So anything else you want to say about the trip? The only thing the film's missing is like Dean Stockwell and Harry Dean Stanton. That is true. Why isn't Harry Dean Stanton in more Corman films. Uh, I don't know. I, the, he's in the Dunwich horror, which I think Corman produced. No, Dean Stockwell's in that one. He's the star of that one. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm actually having a hard time thinking of him being in any of his films. You think he's, he's friends with all these guys. He's like the odd man out or something almost. Yeah. Cause all the other ones have been in his films. I suppose, uh, he was also doing more high profile work. I mean, yeah, at this true. time, he's doing like Cool Hand Luke and things like that. Even if they're they're more bit parts, but at yeah, least they got true. to sing songs in them. So I don't know. <laughs> I th- he's in Dillinger, which John Milius directed, but I think Corman may have been like an executive producer or something on it. I think I could be wrong. Actually, I'm wrong because that's an AIP film. That's not a New World. But film. even Harry Dean's in the uh, the Nicholson westerns, like Ride the World. Yeah, that and yeah, that Monty Hillman did. Yeah. Because I'm even looking through, like, the 70s filmography, I don't really ever see him in any... Cockfighter was released by New World, but I don't think it had anything... Oh, no, Corman's credit as producer. So I guess that would be his one connection to Corman would be Cockfighter. They should just superimpose, like, Harry Dean Stanton into these movies now. <laughs> like, what the way he looks now? Yeah, like, in during Peter Fonda's trip, there's just images of Harry Dean Stanton... <laughs> They should. I'd like that. Like singing Mexican songs and things like that. Yeah, that'll work. Yeah, that would work. So, how many jive turkeys are you going to give the trip? Well, I, I give it five because you know I really like the movie. Yeah, I love the film. Uh, I'm going to give it four jive turkeys. It is a movie that uh, I am intrigued to like watch again. Uh, hopefully, the next time I watch it would maybe be on a better transfer. Yeah, that'd be nice. I would also say that when I watched it, I was very sleepy. Mm-hmm. So there's probably a lot of images that kind of just flew by me that I'd be more, I guess, interested to sort of uh, discover. It seems like a movie that would 
discover more things from on multiple mm-hmm. watch rewatches. So uh, we both enjoyed the trip. That's great. So should I inform everyone what the next episode will be? Yeah. The next episode will be looking at the new film from John Michael McDonough and Brendan Gleeson, Calvary, which played in limited release earlier this year. And um, Nick Wheatley will be back for that episode. Uh-oh. Nasty Nick. How's his, um, his uh, trip through uh, Disney films? How did that go? I think it's coming to a conclusion because he, he goes to Disney in November. So I actually think he's done all... All 52. So he just did the animated films, right? Yeah. See, I, I want to do something similar like he did. Uh, I kind of counted, and it looks like Corman dire- has directing credit on 50 films. Mm-hmm. And I want to watch all 50 of them in order. Whoa. Are they all in print? Like, are they all available to get your hands Well, on? I think I might, you know, if I do it, I'd have to get, like, do some nefarious means on something like Oklahoma Woman, which was a real early film of his. But some of them, like, I'm really excited. Like, I have never seen Ski Troop Attack from 1960. Like, I want to see that one. And I've never seen 1964's The Secret Invasion, which, from what I've read, just sounds like just sounds like The Dirty Dozen three years before The Dirty Dozen. Isn't Stuart Granger in that? Yeah, it's got Stuart Granger and Mickey Rooney and Henry Silva. So it's still, like, a good cast. <laughs> I've actually heard that, um, I guess, Corman had trouble with Stuart Granger on the set of that film where Stuart Granger always wanted more dialogue written for his character. And Corman sort of jokingly said, well, they'd write the dialogue for him, but what the actor didn't realize is that he could cut it all out in post. And so that's (laughs) what he did. That's funny. I, a long time ago, I read his Corman's first autobiography, how I made a hundred movies in Hollywood, never lost a dime, Mm -hmm. but I haven't read that in a really long time. I should pull that out and reread it. I should write a book, How I Produced 100 Podcast Episodes and Lost Lots of Dimes. <laughs> or how you donated to the March of Dimes. Yeah. <laughs> In the, the, the film comment article I read about Corman mm-hmm. from 1971, and they mentioned that in the last 12 months he's released Bloody Mama, Gas, and Von Richtenhoff and Brown, and saying, like, oh, these movies are really great, and it's just... Showing you what we have to look for, what we have to look forward to from Corman. I was just thinking he didn't direct another movie until like 1990. Yeah, von Richtenstein. That's his last directed film, right? For a long yeah. time. Yeah. Um. So Andy can be heard on the Stephen Andy Me Batman podcast, which is supposedly producing new episodes very soon. Hey, Steve asked um, if I want to do it, and I said, yeah. So new, no new updates on that then. Besides that no, initial, no, not yet. okay, no, no. Can also be followed on Letterboxd. I can be found there as well. Filmjive can be reached at filmjive.wordpress.com, Facebook, Stitcher Radio, and iTunes. And you can get in touch with us by sending your emails for the listener feedback segment to filmjive at gmail.com. So thank you for listening to the Film Jive Podcast. Please tune in next episode, and until next time, keep on jiving.